0: Hey, we're in 2 Corinthians 5. All right, let me catch you up to speed. We are working our way through this book of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, because this book, I really do believe, is very relevant coming out of 2020. 2020, I believe, for a lot of us was a rough year, to say the least. I think that mentally, spiritually, emotionally, we, we were kind of exhausted. I think that this is a year that we saw just a, of, um, just a lot of disagreement to an extreme. I think that we saw polarizing, even just Christians just polarized against each other. And here's what 2 Corinthians does. 2 Corinthians says there is a new way to live. There's a new way to do life. There's a new way to following Jesus. I believe Paul in this letter really gives us a clear vision for what it means to live and pursue Jesus. And so we're walking through this letter with that in mind. And let me just kind of catch you up to where we're at. We're in 2 Corinthians 5, and if you've missed this, but this truly is my favorite just portion of Scripture Paul, in chapter 5, is trying to create within this Corinthian church a heavenly mindset. He's trying to say, seek the things that are not seen. Like, live for eternal things. So in verse 1 through 8, Paul talks about how you, one day you and I will receive a new body. We'll have a heavenly body. Then he talks about a heavenly home. Two weeks ago, because we took a little break for Father's Day, two weeks ago, we looked at just Judgment Day. In verse 10, Paul says, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And the Bible seems to talk about two different judgments day. There's one called the Great White Throne Judgment and one called the Bema Seat Judgment. If you missed that, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that. And Paul's basically saying we're going to give an account for how we live our life. Now, here's where we're at. We're picking up in verse 11. Paul's saying in light of this, in light of Judgment Day, in light of heaven, in light of eternity, here's how you live your day-to-day life. Like, here's how you live today. And he's talking about a new way to live. So kind of like our theme for this series is also the title today. The title today is simply, A New Way to Live. He's saying, in light of eternity, in light of heaven, in light of the fact that one day you and I will stand before God and give an account for our lives, he says there is a new way to doing this, a new way to live. So I just want to read verse 11 uh, through 17. We're going to read this all the way through and then pray and just jump, jump right in. So this is Paul's heart. He's saying, hey, Corinthians, stop living for the moment. Keep eternity in mind. You're going to stand before Jesus, give an account for your life, and here's the new way to do life. Let's read verse 11. I will pick up where we left off. We kind of covered the first half of verse 11, but we'll read it again. He says, Therefore, in light of this judgment day, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God. And I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That's where you say amen. Amen. Verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Thank you, Jesus. Why don't we just pray? Just invite the Lord at this time. Father, we thank you again so much for this promise that if anyone is in you, they are a new creation. Jesus, I ask that this morning you would speak to us, that God, you would redefine us this morning, that we would embrace this new identity we have in you, that we would regard no one according to the flesh, that your love would compel us or control us, that your God, your love would motivate us. Jesus, I just wanna ask right now that you'd be so present in this room. We thank you for, for the young families even, just what they represent. We thank you for everyone who's here. God, I just, I just know that you love them. You want to meet with them. You want to speak. So we ask that you would bring clarity and that, Jesus, we'd be more like you in this process. So we love you and we thank you in your precious name. Amen. In Revelation 21, the second to last chapter of the Bible, uh, John says, behold, I see heaven opening and there's a new heaven and a new earth that God created. And then it says this in verse five, God speaking from the throne Right after this new heaven and new earth, God says in Revelation 21, verse 5, Behold, I'm making all things new. Actually, the way he says it, is in this ongoing tense, God is saying, behold, I always, constantly am making all things new again. Like, he's constantly and always making everything new. That in heaven, there's no decay. He's constantly making things new in a consistent manner. I love this. I love that God loves to make things new. God loves to take the old and the decay and he makes it new again. Let's be honest. We love new things. Like We all love new things. There's nothing like a new thing, like new places." new food, new adventures, new car, new toys, whatever. Like we love new things. I know last week is like Amazon Prime day or week. I don't even know how it works now. I'm sure some of you got some Amazon Prime stuff. Uh, But there's nothing like getting that new thing. If you I'm sure you all have, if you've ever received an Apple product, right? Like they come in such a nice box. I'm an Apple box hoarder. I don't know what it is, but like I can't throw it away. I get the box, I'm like, well, what do I do with it now? Like maybe I can sell the box online? Like I don't I don't know. Like I don't want to get rid of the box, like throw it away. I'm like, never. See how crisp this is? It's like a million dollar box. I don't know. So weird. Right? But we like love the new things that are attached to it. My wife for Amazon Prime, uh, she ordered like one of those um, just came in yesterday, a roomba. It's not a roomba, it's a knockoff Roomba, but like those vacuums that kind of go around. And she gets this and it is almost it's fun to watch her. She was like a child on Christmas. She's like my vacuum. And she plugs in and it's like roaming around the house and like my son's chasing. And he's like, oh it thinks I'm trash. And I'm like, oh, it's a problem. You're not, buddy. He's watching too much like Forky and Toys. Anyways, so he's like running from the Roomba. And it's just it's kind of creepy, actually, just watching this thing. And it just goes and like charged itself. I'm like, what to do? She's like, it just charges itself. I'm like, it just knows? Like, it just knows. I'm like, that's kind of scary. She's like, it's great. She's like, all I need now is one for the dishes and one for the laundry. And, like, I'm done. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, we have our house like we're on robots. But there's nothing like getting it, right? There's nothing like that new thing. There's nothing like it. And here's what I love, because let's be honest, all those new toys, all those new Apple products, all those new Amazon Prime thing, like, we know where they end up. They all end up in Garbage Mountain. Like, sooner or later, it's going to be in Garbage Mountain. We know that, right? But here's what I love about God. God says, I make all things new, and they stay new. Like, they don't decay. They don't get worse. They don't break down. And God says, I make you new. You are a new creation, And so we want to look at this idea because, please stay with me, Paul is saying, in light of heaven, in light of getting a new body one day, in light of standing before the judgment seat of Christ, there is a new way to live. Paul is basically saying this like, God knows me, I think you guys know me, you know my heart, and then he describes this new way of living, a new way of following Jesus. So I just want to break down, I think, what Paul is communicating here as a new way to live. Here's his four points as we walk through these verses. We're going to see that Paul offers us a new mindset, new motives, new perspective, and a new identity. Paul's walking through this new mindset, perspective, you know, motives and identity. So, let's just break this down a little bit. In verse 11, Paul is showing us this new mindset that he has. Let's read again, verse 11. Paul says, "Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others." We we said that that first part 2 weeks ago. But what we are is known to God. And I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Um, A new mindset. Paul was constantly, and I just want to bring this up, the context, he was constantly being judged by other leaders in the Corinthian church, really other false leaders in the Corinthian church. Apparently, Paul wasn't the most dynamic, dynamic or charismatic man. And actually, he has to defend his appearance at times, the way he communicated at times. They were taking personal attacks at Paul. They were judging his outward appearance. It is funny because even like old school historians write about Paul, like there seemed to be nothing dynamic about him. He probably was like a little mini George Costanza <laughs> running right around the Roman province and like people were like, who are you? You're nothing special here. And he was being judged by the outward appearance. Actually, just to prove that point, look again at verse 12. Those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Here's what Paul is saying. He goes, you know us. You know me. He says, I'm going to stand before God, and God's going to weigh me and weigh my heart. And he goes, I trust you also probably know my heart. I trust you probably know me in the process. I know we know this, but God has always been concerned with the heart. God is not concerned with the outward man, the outward appearance. God is concerned with the heart. Man judges the outward. Man criticizes maybe actions or decisions or outward or whatever it might be. But Paul goes, no, no, you know my heart in this. God's gonna weigh that, but I trust that you also know my heart. You know, the, the issue the Bible always does bring this up in some capacity. Maybe you've heard it this way, but the heart of every problem is a problem of the heart. The Bible trying to say if you really get to the heart of an issue, the heart of an issue is that the, the heart is broken. As Jer- as Jeremiah would say, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all else. Like we should never be surprised when we hear about some terrible evil or thing happening in the world. And it's like, I can't believe they would do that. No, the heart is crazy wicked. My heart is crazy wicked. And the Bible actually speaks a lot about the heart, how God is in pursuit of our hearts. I want you to know this, that more than anything, God is right now in pursuit of your heart. God wants your heart. God wants the core of you, who you are. God wants your will, your motives, your life, your thing. God wants all of you, the core of you. God is in pursuit of that. You know, I think about what Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 15, right? In Matthew 15, he's like talking about the Pharisees, where they've gone wrong, like hypocrites. But he says about the Pharisees in Matthew 15, he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He's like, I don't want you just to say these words during worship. I don't want you just to proclaim you know God, and yet your heart is far from me. God is very much so concerned with the heart. Jesus in the book of Mark says, Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, lies, murders, sexual morality. Out of the heart comes these things. God is constantly in pursuit of the heart. Paul's mindset is, look at these guys care too much about the outward man when in reality God cares about the heart. And he goes, "And you, you know me. You, you've seen what I've done. You've seen my, my dedication to you. You know, I want to just be really clear. Paul was never really seeking the praise of men. Like, he, he, you couldn't see the temptation. be Guys, come on, you know me. You could see him wanting to get the praise of men, but he, never, he was never really concerned with that. He, he really just wanted to honor. He knew he had an audience of one. Like, in, in the midst of all of this, there's only one person I have to please. I mean, this is so important for us as we live our lives. What a freeing day it is when you and I realize that we have an audience of one what a freeing day it is when you realize I cannot be a people pleaser and please everyone. I'm going to fail someone along the way or their expectations, but truly God, I love what Paul said earlier in 2 Corinthians, he goes, you know, my heart before the Lord is innocent. He goes, it's blameless. He used the word blameless. Like he, there's nothing he's like, I feel like I'm hiding before God. I have an audience of one. This is so key to the life of following Jesus. This is such a key mindset that you and I truly have an audience of one. Not that we disregard people's opinions or we walk all over them because if we care about God and his, his view of us, we should care about others because he loves others. But Paul goes, but this is who I'm serving and living for, ultimately. You know, you think about Pilate. Pilate was the exact opposite. Pilate, the one who stood before Jesus and says, don't you know that I have all the power and authority to crucify you or to set you free? Who do you say that you are? And he was like trying to give him out. He goes, I think you're an innocent man. Pilate in his heart of hearts was with Jesus and believed he was innocent. But it says in Mark 15, 15, listen, it says, Pilate wishing to satisfy the crowd, release for them Barabbas, having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. You see, the problem with Pilate was he was a people pleaser. He goes, I want to satisfy the crowd here, even though I believe you're innocent. Paul goes, that's not me. It's not my mindset. You know, God cares about the hearts. Now, with that, Paul says something very interesting about his mind and mindset in verse 13. Look at verse 13 again. Kind of throws this off. He says, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. Now, let me kind of point this out. This is not the first time Paul has been accused of being maybe an insane person, right? Like, Paul's in a sense defending his sanity. Um, this is interesting to me. He goes, if we are beside ourselves, like, if you think we're losing it, if you think we've lost our mind here, it's for God. Like, what is he using that? What term is he using that? This is really interesting. In Acts 26, Paul I think is one of the most brilliant kind of layouts of the gospel. Read it. He's standing before guy and King Agrippa and Festus, this Roman governor, and Paul just preaches the gospel, man, like so clear. He talks about how he person and killed Christians, his testimony, how Jesus intervened in his life, he preaches the gospel. Now listen to this. It's Acts 26, verse 24. We'll put it up here. This is what happens next. Festus, he said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king, King Agrippa, the king knows about these things, And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, he says, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. I love that. I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, you would persuade me to be a Christian. And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Well, I love this. He's given a defense before King Agrippa and Festus. And Festus is like, Paul, you've lost your mind. You've studied too much. You've learned too much. I think you're out there now. And he's like I'm not. I haven't lost my mind, most excellent Festus. Oh, that sounds like creepy. He's like I'm not out of my mind, and I love what he says. He's like King Agrippa, you know these things weren't done in a corner. What things? The death and resurrection things. He goes, you know the death and resurrection of Jesus is not some fable. This was not done in some corner somewhere where no one knew about it. This was a public thing, the death and resurrection of Jesus. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. I love Paul. He's like almost persuading him. He's like Wow, you almost persuade me. And he's like not just you, but everyone. I want you to hear this. When it comes to just being bold for Christ, you're gonna. You're gonna be misunderstood, obviously. Like, when you actually believe in the gospel of Jesus, I want you to understand what, if you believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again, many people say that you're radical. The idea of just saying, I believe that Jesus Christ is who he said he is. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, rose again three days later. I believe that people saw that. They, they gave their life for that truth, and they willingly laid down their life for that truth. And you say, I so believe that with everything I have. People would say, You're out of your mind. You're out of your mind. Paul's like, you know what? If I'm out of my mind, it's for God. If I'm of a rational mind, it's for you. Like, there comes a point in time where he's speaking to the church. And here's the thing. you got to understand, we need Christians who have, like, both. Like, meaning 2 Timothy 1.7 says, God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. We need Christians who have what Paul has. He's like, you know what? I'm kind of losing it, it appears, to others for the gospel, but I'm also a really sound mind. Like, we need Christians who say, you know what? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation. We need Christians to say, I will tell you about Jesus. I have the greatest news ever told, that God entered earth, took on my sin, my suffering, my humanity, paid the ultimate price I should have paid, took my place, died for my sins, rose again. People gave their life for this truth. I'm not ashamed of this. We need people who might, to the world, that might look crazy, but to the church to go, I also want to offer you rational and systematic and clear teaching on that truth. And this is what Paul was. His mindset was, you know what? I'm going to be misunderstood but I have an audience of one. I'm going to be misunderstood in my boldness for Christ, but you know it. Again, I'm here to please him. God's after my heart and after the outward man. Listen, church, we need a generation of people. I think we've been almost like, we've been told for so long, like, listen, keep your beliefs to yourself. Don't force your beliefs on anyone. And you're like, thank you for forcing that belief on me, but don't force your beliefs on anyone. Don't you dare do that. And in reality, it's why? Because we have the greatest message ever that the enemy does not want to get out. We do need more people who are saying, I'm not ashamed. And you know what? I can do this rationally and soundly because God is not going me a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and sound mind. Amen? Paul goes, this is my mindset in this process. It might be misunderstood, but it's also very sound and clear, and you can't disagree with that kid, you King Agrippa. You see both within Paul. Next, we see this, not just this new mindset but we see new motives. Paul explains his motive for the gospel, for the ministry. Paul explains his motive for life. Let's read verse 14, so good. Here's Paul's motive, verse 14. He says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Okay, here's some new motives. If you're to ask Paul, Paul, why do you do what you do? Like, why do you travel around the Roman Empire, Turkey, the Middle East? Why do you go around planting churches, people kicking you out, beating you, stoning you? You're ending up in shipwrecks, being bitten by snakes. Like, why do you do this? Why would you constantly lay your life on the line? Paul's only response is, the love of Christ compels me. The love of Christ controls me. If you were to say, Paul, what's your motivation? I think what an important question. What's your motivation for what you do and why you do it? Why, do you, why are you here? Why do you come to church? Why do you love? Why do you serve? Why do you give? Why do you want to be part of community? Why? The only right answer is the love of Christ compels me. I have no other option than the love of Jesus' is controlling and compelling and motivating me to do so. This is what Paul is saying very clearly. Now, I want to actually bring this up. If I said, now, is it our love for Jesus or Jesus' love for us that compels us? Yes. You know, it's funny. This Friday, I got lunch with a guy named Warren Gage. He was the president of like Knox Theological Seminary. Really interesting guy. You know, he knows biblical Hebrew, biblical Greek. He knows Egyptian. He was telling me something. He'd read hieroglyphics, and I said it wrong. He's like, it's not called hieroglyphics. I'm like, I don't know. Um, he's a really smart guy. And I was like, hey, can I talk through my text with you for this weekend? And he's like, oh, you have the love of Christ? He goes, make sure your people know the love of Christ is in reference to both God's love for us and our love for him, but primarily God's love for us. He's like, they need to know. So I'm making sure I'm telling you, okay? I told. So I'm like, okay, I will tell you. And here, here's the thing. It is. The love, of, the love that God has for us compels us, but this love that God has for us does something to our heart where our love for him also compels us. You know, obviously, First John says that we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. Obviously, begins with the love of God. Obviously, he loved us way before we loved him. This is a kind of love that has never been merited. You know, it's never been earned. I mean, it, this really did hit me, I think, the most when I became a parent. Like, this love that, like, I just love you because you're mine. Like, there's no reason. Like, you can bite me, poop on me, pee on me. You know, you can talk back to me, and that's a different phase. You can do all these things, and I just I just have a crazy love for you. Like, it doesn't even matter what you do. I'm just going to love you. And your God's like, this is my love for you. It's not merited. You didn't work for that love. Just my love for, I cannot, I can't help but show you this love. You know, I know that it's obviously you expected a church today to say from the pastor, hey, God loves you, but maybe you do struggle with that belief. I think for a lot of my teenage years, I struggled with how could God love me? Like, I'm pretty messed up and secretive about my sin. Like, how could God really love me? you got to understand God's love for you is not something I fully understand. I think Paul when I when I read the epistles I see how often Pauls I feel like letters are being intertwined. Paul's writing 2 Corinthians 5 fits so well with Romans 8. And here's what Paul says in Romans 8. Romans chapter 8 verse 35, a passage you know well but listen. Paul says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep Uh, to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we were overwhelmingly conquered through him who loves us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Guys, I will say this, even your thoughts that God can never, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Even the false narratives or lies I tell myself about the love of God, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. My point is, this is some of the greatest news ever. Paul goes, do you want to know why I do what I do? Because the love of God has just been so poured out in my heart, I can't not do it. There comes a point in your time in your life where people are like, why do you do this? You're like, I just can't not I can't not do it. Is that even English? I don't know. But I can't not. Like, if I were not to go, it, w- it wouldn't sit right with me. If I were not to tell them, if I were not to do this, I just can't not. The love of Christ compels me. This is where Paul's at. Paul says, you want to know my motive for life? And I, and I want to kind of break down this verse. Notice what he says in verse 14. He says, the love of Christ compels us, constrains us, it controls us. And then he it down, he says, because we have concluded this that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. All right, Paul's like, want to know what controls me, my motive? The love of Christ compels me, it controls me, because I've concluded this, and then he shares the gospel. Paul's like, my conclusion is this, Jesus died for all, Therefore, all have died in Christ, and if you believe in him, you will live for him. And here's the thing. Paul's basically saying, I've come to this conclusion that Jesus is who he says he is. That Jesus died in my place and rose again in my place. He goes, I can't get away from that. That's my conclusion. The word here, look at that that word, concluded, is this word to judge. Like, this is his end conclusion. He's basically saying, there's nothing else in life that makes sense in light of this now. Let me put it this way. In John chapter 6, Jesus is preaching in front of thousands of people, and they love him. This is the height of Jesus' ministry. Thousands of people following Jesus all around Galilee. And Jesus feeds 5,000 in John 6, and the crowds love him. But then, after he's done, he he preaches. And Jesus preached some things the crowds did not like. He said, I'm the bread of life, and whoever eats and believes in me shall be saved. And he, he said some things that the people didn't like. And it says this, in John chapter 6, verse 66... It says, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Jesus did some things they loved, but he preached some things they didn't love. And in John six six six, that's when many of the disciples left. Now, in verse 67, Jesus looks at his 12 disciples and says, are you two going to leave? And Peter's response, I believe, just summarizes the heart of a follower of Jesus. Here's what Peter says in John 6, 68. He says, Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter's like, God, where else can we go? Jesus? Where else can we go? I mean, we've been with you. We've watched you. We've seen you. Everything you are, we love. Like, where else can we go? Peter asks a great question. If not Jesus, then what? If not Jesus, then who? He goes, there's nothing else that seems to make sense now in light of knowing you and meeting you. I, there's, I can't just reject this idea anymore. You know, I think that you have to ask, if not Jesus, then what? Then what? Then what do you believe? Then what do you give your life over to? Well, I just believe that, you know, some lightning struck some gases, and give a couple billion years, we have some human consciousness, okay? Like, and you can honestly, the idea is like, if not Jesus, then what do you want to embrace into your life? What do you want to take on? Peter goes, Jesus, where else can we go? Where else can we turn? You alone have the words of eternal life. This is what we've seen firsthand. And notice this. Notice Peter, Peter's order. He says, we have come to believe and know. This really is important. I do, I do understand this phrase that people say, you know, seeing is believing. But I know that this phrase, what I'm about to say next, is going to frustrate people. But the Bible does say believing is seeing. That we've come to believe and now we know. I know that very often in my walk, I want to know and then I will believe. But Paul mentions this actually in chapter 3 about the Jewish people. He goes, when they believe, then the veil is removed. He goes, when we've come to believe and know. You believe and then you know. He's like, I, Jesus, I believe and I know. It's you. Like, where else can we go? There's nowhere else, Jesus. We've come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You know, C.S. Lewis talks about this in a very similar manner. It's a very well-known quote, but I love how he says it. He says, I believe the sun has risen not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. You know, it's not that I look at the sun and burn my eyeballs out and I see the sun. Like, oh, I believe the sun's real because I just looked at it and went blind. He's like, no, no, it's because by the sun I see everything else. Nothing else makes sense without it. See, Jesus, there's nothing else. Like, you are that framework for how we now interpret reality. You are the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through you, Jesus. We have come to believe and know there's nothing else that satisfies. Why is there evil, pain, suffering? Why is there all that? Nothing else satisfies other than the gospel of Jesus. I love how John Stott, one theologian, said this about Jesus. John Stott wrote, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? What other worldview says God entered into suffering, took on a human body, suffered with us, suffered among us, died with us. It's not that God's in heaven going, oh, no, creation's suffering. God's like, let me suffer with it. You know, Christianity is the only worldview where we say God took on human suffering, on human limitations, suffered with us. John it says, I could never believe in a God if he didn't do that. The fact that Jesus suffered with us, to whom shall we go? where else can we go? You guys got to know this. Our heart is not bent towards believing this. I mean, obviously you know this, but you, you got to think about the gospel story. When Jesus died, none of the disciples were like, he's going to rise any minute. Like, right? Like, they didn't believe that. Like, the human heart is not predisposed to want to believe this. Like, because think about this. If Jesus is who he says he is, that means I have to give up control. Like, if Jesus truly died and rose again, that means he's Lord. And that means I'm not Lord. And I like the thought of being Lord. And I have to give up control now. So the human heart wants to stay in control. We, we don't want to believe this. The disciples didn't want to believe this. The, or the first Jewish believers didn't want to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus. My, my thing is this, but obviously they did believe in it. Why? Because Jesus has risen. We have to understand what we have. We have to understand the power of the gospel. I, I love the thought, this thought. That the idea that Again, the human heart does not want to believe in something that will make it give up control. And so you know what we we realize we see this in the disciples but they ended up believing because why Jesus died and rose again. I want to see Paul says we concluded this. We've come to this end uh, this is the end of our understanding of this. And then notice how he breaks down the gospel. One died for all, therefore all have died. Now, what is he saying? Is Paul saying that everyone is saved? Is Paul a universalist where he's saying, doesn't matter who you are or what you've done, as long, when you die, you'll go to be in heaven with God? No, I think one author said the best. This doesn't mean he saved everyone, but it does mean his death is sufficient to save all. His death is sufficient to save all. You know what? You can never act like he only died for the elect. Not true. His death is sufficient to save all. Absolutely. But he makes it really clear to him who, what? Who lives for him. Just this idea of now, if you truly believe in the death, death and resurrection of Jesus, you will now live for that risen Jesus. You're going to live in light of that. And this is what Paul is ultimately getting at. So keep reading with me in verse 15. He says that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Here's the key. The Bible tries to say, stop living for yourself and live for him. There is a battle right now for our life and what we live for. Everyone wants us to like, live for them or their brand or their thing. And Jesus is saying, you can no longer live for yourself when you believe in the death and resurrection of me. You will now live for me. I really want us to like, get this ingrained because this is something I know we all struggle with. You say, I can go to church, I can believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus, but, but living for him? Like, it's not just about, okay, now I get to go to heaven when I die. Jesus wants us to live for him today. That we would live for him. Paul said something similar in Romans 14. I actually, we have to put it up here. Romans 14, listen to how he says this. He says, if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and of the living. He goes, if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Jesus is the Lord of both the death and the living. Listen, if you want Jesus to be Lord over your death, let him be Lord over your life. He's the Lord of the death and of the living. Paul said it this way, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain, right? Paul says, you want to know what life is? Here's what life is, Jesus. What's death? Gain. You cannot say death is gain if you cannot say for to me to live is Christ. If, to me, if it, For to me to live is fill in the blank. Death is not gain if it's not Jesus. For to me, to live is make a lot of money and to die is just to lose it all. For to me, is just party and live it up and have as much sex and alcohol as I want and to die again, it's just game over. But you see, death is only gain if you can say, for to me, to live is Christ. Paul says, death is gain, why? Because I'm living for Christ. You know, think about this, what is life? If you have to answer the question, what is life? Jesus' brother James, actually the book of James, asked that question, he goes, what is life? He asks, he goes, what is life? He says, our life is even as a vapor, right? Just a puff of smoke, here and gone. What is life? You know, think about your life really quick. I mean, it's a simple question, but just think about it. What, what do you, like, what do you honestly live for? When you and I wake up in the morning, like, what do you get up? This is what I'm going to live for. Like, what motivates you? What are you currently living for? You know, the Bible makes it really, really clear, and I want us to just point this out, that everything in life can be taken or lost from you except for Jesus. Meaning, honestly, you think about the things we live for. My family can be taken from me. I could lose my family. I can lose my finances. I could lose my home. I could lose every single thing in my life. Naked I came in, naked I leave. Everything that you and I live for can be taken from us, except for Jesus. You cannot lose Jesus. Jesus cannot be taken from you. That when you live for Him, that's one thing that can never be stolen or lost or taken. For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul said, "This is what I am living for." Verse fifteen again. He's saying this that we would live for Him. I love how Matt Chandler said this. He says, "In the logic of the gospel." There are no alternatives to Christ. Every other option is no option at all. When everything considered valuable in life is seen to be nothing in comparison to the glory of Christ, you learn rather well that Christ alone is worth living for. Christ alone is worthy of an entire life, affections and devotions. See, this is just no other options, you say, at this point. I'm alive to him. If you have a proper definition of life, you will be able to face anything. If you and I honestly have a proper definition of life, you can face anything. If Christ is your life, then when he appears, you will appear with him in glory, Colossians 3 says. If Christ, who is your life, when he appears, you will appear with him. Just the idea that you can lose everything, but not Jesus. You know, I want to ask it this way. What, what do you come alive to? When you talk to people... Maybe you're having a conversation with someone for like 30, 40 minutes, right? It's like boring, boring. They're like, oh my gosh, this is so hard. I can't get it. I can't get any life from them. But then you mention like one thing. You're like, oh, blah blah blah, patriots. They're like, oh, and they go, I love the patriots. Or like I hate the patriots, right? It's kind of funny. Like you go, what do they come alive to? You go, oh my gosh, okay, so that's like what you're passionate about. Okay, awesome. And you kind of see what comes out of them. Or whatever you want to mention. Like name the sport, name the thing, name the food, name the country. And they're like, oh my gosh, my thing? And you go, okay, life is what you come alive to. And I think about when I say when I'm like blah 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 blah, Jesus, like, wait, Jesus? you know him too? You believe? Like, what do you come alive to. And, and Paul is saying that, listen, he died and rose again so that we might live for him. That we would live for him. It's not just about one day we too will rise, but thank you Jesus we will. It's that right now between our, our salvation moment and heaven, he wants us to live for him. That my life is not my own, that I was bought at a price, therefore I should glorify God in my body and in my spirit, which are his. That this is his. That he gave his life for me for my life. He says, I'm going to give you my life and I want your life. I'm giving you my life, and I want you now to live for me in everything you do. Paul says, we have some new motives now. The love of Christ compels us. This is my focus. This is the gospel. And then next, number three, is this. He says, we have a new perspective. A new perspective of others and a new perspective of Jesus. And this is so gospel, right? Look at verse 16. What does he say or how does he say it? Verse 16, he says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regard Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Uh, a new perspective. Let me explain this. He goes, we don't regard anyone anymore according to the flesh, nor do we regard Christ anymore according to the flesh. What is he saying? Two things I just want to break down with you. One is this, reconsider how you look at others and reconsider how you look at Jesus. Paul goes, we don't regard anyone according to the flesh. Again, we do live in a world that really loves to put labels on people and on things. A lot of times, ultimately, so we can dismiss them. We do this. We go, oh, you voted that way? Mm. Like, you're, you're, on the left, you're on the right? Oh, gosh. Like, what we do is we put on a label. Why? Now I don't have to engage with you. Now I don't have to love you. Now I don't have to have a deep relationship with you. I can just label you in my mind and just kind of avoid you. No, we don't regard anyone according to the flesh. You know, we do live in a moment where, again, we want to find our identity in something other than Jesus. People try to make our primary identity based off our race, our gender, our social status, our economic worth, all these things. Are those things a part of who we are? Absolutely. But here's what Paul tells us in Galatians 3, 28. He says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is how we regard no one according to the flesh. He's saying, you know what? In Christ Jesus, you and I have this leveled playing field at the cross. We're all guilty before God and we're all deemed before God. And this is the, the good news is that I don't look at you as the filthy sinner that you are or the filthy sinner that I am, but as someone who's loved by God and redeemed by God. When he says, we regard no one after the flesh, it goes back to this beautiful Christian understanding of something called a Mago Dei, image of God, that you and I see the stamp and image of God on everyone. Everyone has the stamp of God on them. Everyone has the image of God on them. That we say, I love you, you are beautiful, you are valuable, despite how you identify yourself or make yourself known to people, you have the image of God on you, and he loves you, and he wants to redeem you, and I love you, And I think Christians, we can really get at two extremes where we we kind of embrace to the point where we aren't able to maybe speak truth or love or show the redemptive nature of Christ or we can just completely avoid and we've kind of put a stiff arm at people and Paul says, no, no, we regard no one according to the flesh. So the idea is, is how does Jesus view this person? How did Jesus view the woman who had six different husbands and is currently living and sleeping with this other man? How did he view her? How did Jesus engage with her? Jesus, how did Jesus approach those situations? I think the point for us, you and I as followers of Jesus have to reconsider how we look at others. You and I have to regard them not according to their flesh, but with a Mago that they have the image of God on them, that we have to speak of them with a little bit more integrity than just say, oh, you're this, label, done with you. The world might do that to Christians. Oh, you're a Christian, you're a bigot, you're this, done with you. I'm not done with you. I love you. You can dismiss me all day long, but it doesn't matter. I see the image of God stamped on your life. That desire you have for justice, what's a beautiful desire that God has given you? There's something called biblical justice, redemptive justice. Let's talk about, there's some redemptive factor we can find with that person. Let's find that. We regard no one according to the flesh. Amen? Church, we got to do better at this. We got to do better at this. And then this, he says, reconsider how you look at Jesus. How did Paul look at Jesus before he believed in Jesus? To, to Paul, Paul hated Jesus. Paul was Saul. He's like, I didn't like Jesus. Jesus was like a cult to me. This, like, Christian sect that tried to steal from Judaism. Paul did not like Christians. Paul did not like Jesus. He was actually really clear on this. It's Acts 26 again. Listen, here's what Paul says personally about his view of Jesus. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison and received authority from the chief priests, but that when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme Jesus. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. You know what Paul regarded Jesus? Paul Paul hated Jesus. He's like, I try to persecute Jesus, the name of Jesus, anyone under the name of Jesus. And he goes, but you know what? Then one day I met Jesus on the road and it forever changed my life. And he goes, I don't regard Jesus according to the flesh anymore. because why? Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. He goes, I I reconsider how I view others. Paul would never, never find himself eating a meal with a Gentile. And now here he is preaching the gospel and like living with Gentiles. And now here's Paul saying, Jesus, the one I used to persecute and blaspheme, I can't speak highly enough of the name of Jesus. I just want to ask everyone here the one thing I think we've got to do is just reconsider how you look at Jesus. I think people who said, I've given the Bible a chance, I've read it before, I've been to church before, not for me. Can I just ask you to reconsider Jesus. Reconsider who he is. Spend some time, look at Jesus, read the Gospels. I would say, you know, the more you read about Jesus, the more you're going to go, I like this guy, Jesus. Maybe there's something about this. Maybe I should reconsider. Maybe the death and resurrection is not a fable. Maybe there's something more to this. Maybe there's some evidence around this. I should explore that. Listen, if Jesus is who he says he is, that changes everything. That changes absolutely everything. We need to reconsider. I think many people who you love and engage with on a daily basis, just invite them to reconsider Jesus. Just, hey, would you reconsider Jesus with me? I'm not even talking about the church or the abuse of the Christians. Can we just reconsider Jesus? Can we just talk about Jesus? Because if he is who he says he is, I mean, it's the only thing in life that matters. Paul talks about this new perspective we get in Christ. Amen? Here's the last thing, a new identity. We get a new identity. Look at verse 17. He says and ends with this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This sounds so good to me. Let's be honest. You know, I'm not the man I want to be, the husband I should be, the father I ought to be, the pastor I need to be. I fall short in so many ways, and it can be exhausting, but can I tell you what Jesus says about me is I have a new identity. I am a new creation in Christ that the old has passed away. Even just like right now, this present moment will pass away. God is constantly making all things new. That that does not define me, that we have a, an identity that is truly in Christ based off what he's done, not who we are or what we've done. This is so incredibly freeing. There is a battle, obviously, and I kind of mentioned this just for identity. That everyone wants you to find your primary identity and fill in the blank. We are saying as followers of Jesus, find your identity in Christ. In Christ. You know what you're not having in common? We're in Christ. That is beautiful. Neither Jew nor Gentile slave nor free male nor female we are all one in Christ that is my identity we are in Christ this is so beautiful it takes away what we live in we live in a world that says your identity is based off your merits what did you do that's right so you accomplish these great things awesome that's your identity now and we're saying no no identity and this is the way I want to make it really clear your identity is received in Christ not achieved your identity in Christ is just received you never achieve it You just just receive it. I love how John says it in John 1.12, as many as receive him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God, John 1.12. As many as receive him. I just receive this identity. I might not even feel this way, I might not think this way, but I receive this, that Jesus, you call me a new creation. My thoughts might lie to me and say I'm not, but nothing can separate me from the love of God. And we have to remind ourselves and preach the gospel even to ourselves. Church, I want you to know more than anything that your identity first and foremost is in Jesus. You are in Christ. You are a new creation. Find your primary identity in him. Uh, a guy named Soren Kierkegaard, this Danish philosopher, brilliant man for the world, but also a follower of Jesus, uh, here's what he says. He says, it is the normal state of the human heart to try to build its identity around something besides God. We're actively, ongoing, trying to find our identity in something besides God. Resist that. Fight that. Find your identity in Christ. When someone says, don't you know that you're this? No, no, no. I'm in Christ. I'm a son of God. I'm a bride of Christ. I'm a new creation. That's my identity. That's who I am. That again, your identity is received and not achieved, and it takes away from everything we're told about this world. You do these things, then you'll be a CEO. That's your identity, or you'll become an NBA player. That's your identity. It's like based off your merit and your work, but in Christ, you just receive it. You can't fake it. You can't force it. You can't pretend to be it. You just receive it. So thank you, Jesus. I'm in you. I'm a new creation. Old has passed away. All has become new. You know, you think about this. If, any, if anyone, if anyone, that means it's available to anyone. That anyone can be in Christ. And in Christ, Paul never found his primary identity in the things he's done. It would be easy to be Paul... Who he did mention at different times. I was a blasphemer, a persecutor. I, I, martyred, I killed Christians. I did all these terrible things. But his new identity. He goes, but thanks be to God who found me faithful, who called me into the ministry. His identity was, but I'm a new creation in Christ. That even though I once persecuted the church of God, God does not see me anymore. He does not see me in that light anymore. He now sees Christ in me, the hope of glory. You see, when Jesus sees you or sees me, He does not see Josiah Graves, the filthy sinner that I am. He sees Jesus Christ in me. He sees Jesus Christ in you, because that is your identity. So when the world tries to say, you will always be defined by the decision you made when you're 17 years old, that is not true at all. When anyone tries to hold you or pinpoint you, it's like, but don't you know that mistake? That's why we live in such a weird cultural moment where we want to end someone's whole entire life and we forget that, no, in Christ, you can be a new creation. That thing said, that thing done, I'm sorry, you can be a new creation in Christ. I'm hoping the world now more than ever goes, you know what? The church is actually the most inclusive place. My very own got rid of me, but the church will accept me and take me in because we are all one in Christ Jesus. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus because what Jesus did defines me, not what I did. The Bible does not say what I do defines me. This is what Jesus Christ did for me defines me. Right? It is finished. It is done. That is my identity. Guys, this is such good news that we have. We have incredible news in the gospel. Thank you, Jesus, that I'm a new creation because of what you've done. I'm not going to boast in my works. I'm going to boast in the finished cross of the Jesus. And then in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That is where a boast comes in. You are a new creation. The old has passed away. Just being, like, even for years, being a youth pastor and hearing how kids, I'd meet with them week after week, and they would define themselves by some comments, and it'd lead them down a terrible path, body image issues, just certain issues that they just carry with them, leading to suicides, overdosing, just being a part of that and seeing that, and realizing that gospel can set you free from that, because you are a new creation. That does not define you, and we have something I think the world needs and craves, and that is only found in Jesus. Amen? You know, Revelation talks about this. There will be a new heaven and new earth. Only the new creation can enter into that. There's a new heaven and new earth. Old creation cannot enter into the new creation. That's why God's like your new creation. You want to enter into this new heaven, new earth. Behold, I make all things new. I love how it says in Revelation. He says, "He who thirsts, come." The bright says, "Come." The Spirit says, "Come." I think Jesus just wants to offer this to anyone. Say, "Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus as you are." He makes all things new. Not you. Don't even try. He makes all things new. He redefines you. He gives you that new identity that's only found in Christ. I would say this at least. At least, would you reconsider Jesus? Would you reconsider Jesus? Would you reconsider the gospel of Jesus and maybe how you perceived it? Would you relook look at who he is and what he's done? I just want to invite you into that. Amen? I'm going to pray, and then I want to change gears and talk a little bit just about some new things <laughs> in light of this new creation. Can we do that? Let's just pray really quick. Father, we thank you. We need you. There is no one like you. Thank you, Jesus, that we've been set free by your blood, that, God, by your stripes we are healed. Thank you, God, that the cross is this great unifying effect for all of mankind, that we're all found guilty and innocent at the same time. Thank you. We love you. We need you. Would you lead this conversation? We ask Jesus in your name. Amen. Amen.